Well, if you have your Bibles, we'll once again turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. And I'm going to begin this morning by singing slash quoting part of a song. And I'm going to start it and I want you to fill in the blank. and See how well you know your oldies here. Um, Alright, and, and I'm actually going to do two songs. And both of these songs were actually asked to be written and were written during the time period of the Vietnam War when there was... Um, there was a lot of just a conflict and division that was taking place in the country about all of that. And, and they were asked to, to write a song that would help inspire and unify the country. So now I'm giving you some clues. I think you'll find this probably pretty easy. Um, but I'm going to do it anyways. In, in spite of the fear that I have of singing in front of you all. Um, the first one is this. And they're not, it's not on in the back there. If you could switch me over to the uh, settings. The first one is, what the world needs now. There you go. Now, who can tell me who sang it? Jackie Dace, is here. Go to the next one there for me. There it is. How many of you takes you back to the 60s? Alright, I'm going to ask you all to have to stop singing at that point. <laughs> Some of you that takes you back to the 60s. The next one is also same time period. I think you're going to find this one probably just as easier, if not easier all you need is all right go ahead in the next slide there all you need is love all you need is love all you need is love 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 is all you need i think i saw more people singing during that than in our congregational singing. Everybody was mouthing those words. Um, that was written by John Lennon, sung by the Beatles. And um, pretty simple messages, right? Both those in that same time period. What we need to do to try to help unify a message of love. And the reason I bring those up is just partly because I grew up listening to oldies with my parents. Um, and some of you take offense to that term oldies, but... If you turn to it on the dial or on your uh, XM radio, that's what they classify them as. But, um, and so the Beatles and Jackie DeShazier, those songs were in my head throughout this week as I was preparing some things. And where we're going to be at in our study today in chapter 4, um, and if you could help me get on the settings there so it's receiving, um, it's not doing Okay. You're going to have to follow along with me. If you go to the next slide there. Um, John is emphasizing the importance of love in this portion. He's going to do that again more in chapter 4. And what he's doing is he's carrying through. He's, he's, he's going to emphasize this command by Christ to love. In fact, in First and Second John, he actually repeats the command by Christ to love one another 
six different times in these short letters. And in this, cha- in this portion of chapter 3, he began with, Behold what manner the love of the Father has for us, that he would make us children of God. And then he emphasizes, well, what should that look like? What does that DNA of us being children of God start to produce? And one of them, in verses 1 through 10 that he emphasized, was there's a desire for pursuing purity. There's a desire to want to live right before God. Well, then where he goes in verses 11 through 24, really 11 through 18, is it also produces a love for the brethren. You'll notice he kind of finished verse 10 with that same direction. At the end of verse 10, he ends with, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. And he builds from there in verse 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then down in verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life. In other words, that we are children of God, that we, are, uh, we have received eternal life through Jesus Christ. How? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And so what he's emphasizing is a pretty strong direction on this aspect that should be true of a believer, of a love for the brethren, a love for fellow believers. Now, just to set the biblical stage for this a little bit, I want to, before we dissect this, to see what love looks like and what it produces, I want to just demonstrate the the prominence of this expectation and command to love in Scripture. So we go to the next Scripture, John 13, 34 to 35. This is Christ in the upper room with His disciples. And He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. In Galatians 5, 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, after he lists out several gifts of tongues and prophecy and understanding knowledge and all these things, he says, if I have not love, it profits me nothing. Could have all kinds of gifts and abilities, but if I don't have love, that profits me nothing. And then he lists out regarding um, now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And one more in Colossians 3.14, after Paul has been exhorting the Colossians to put on vows of mercies and, and kindness and humbleness of heart and, and mind and meekness, long-suffering and to forgive, he says, but above all these things... Put on love, which is the bond of perfection. That's pretty amazing that above all these things, above, uh, above that humbleness of mind, above meekness, above bowels of mercies, above forgiveness, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. In other words, it takes all, love takes all of those things and makes them applicable and makes them effective in the life of the believer. So what we're seeing is that true Christianity loves. True Christians love one another. Now, I realize that that word love means a lot of different things to a lot of different people in context, and that needs to be defined. We'll do some of that throughout the the message today to help bring some definition. But suffice to start us, the Bible uses different terms for the word love itself also. It uses four different terms. One of them speaks of a, uh, a brotherly love, that's phileo, 
Another one speaks of a family type of a love. That's storge. There's also the intimate love between a husband and wife. That's eros. But the love that's used most often in the New Testament, over 200 times in the New Testament, is the word agape. And it speaks of a sacrificial love. That, that is, a, that is a, a love that does not seek its own interest, but seeks the interest of the other individual. It's actually a, a love that is centered in and given to us by God. In fact, in chapter 4, we're told that God is love, this type of agape love. In fact, I found it interesting that J.I. Packer, he has a book written, Your Father Loves You. And he says this about this word agape, which is the type of love that we're admonished to be having as Christians. He says this Greek word agape, love, seems to have been virtually a Christian invention. A new word for a new thing. Apart from about 20 occurrences in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's almost non-existent before the New Testament. Agape draws its meaning directly from the revelation of God in Christ. It's not a form of natural affection, however intense, but a supernatural fruit of the Spirit. In other words, this really, this type of love in, in all of literature and all of writings really is developed and demonstrated in Christ and is then admonished for us starting really in the New Testament. It's that Godward type of love. And so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about in this text, as John's writing here, he's talking about a God type of love, a a God-like love that that looks out for someone else's interests over our own. Looks out for what is best that way. So what I want to do is let's look this morning then in the text at how children of God are to love like this and what that produces also. We're going to look at that later on in the text. So let's, let's quickly have a word of prayer. And then we'll jump right in. Father, thank you for this opportunity to understand better what loving as a Christian ought to look like. And God, I pray that you'd help us. This also is to be a, uh, an indicator of a child of God, that we would analyze that and to see how are we in our walk with you. Lord, if there's anybody here today that's maybe struggling with, man, I don't know if I even am a child of God, or I don't even know if... These characteristics, that attributes are, are there. God, I pray that you draw them to understand that salvation is full and free through Jesus Christ. They can trust in what he did on the cross as a payment for their sins. So God, I pray that you would draw us into a deeper walk with you and a deeper relationship with one another uh, this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing we're going to see, just two points today, but one is that love is the reality of a child of God. <clears throat> love is the reality of a child of God. Once again, we're, <clears throat> we're transitioning from this aspect of a child of God will pursue purity, will practice righteousness in verses 1 through 10. And now he's going to emphasize that another telltale family trait of the, the family of God is love for the brethren. Now, this is not just a generic love for all mankind. It's specifically talking about Love for fellow believers. That there's a genuine heart to be with and to spend time with and to care for one another that is unique. But the question that John is going to answer in the text is how? How should a Christian love? What should this look like? He's going to give us four different distinct ways uh, that are defined for us in here. And the first one is this, that a Christian should love sincerely. 
Christians should love sincerely. And, and what he does really is he tells us, first of all, what this love should not be. He's going to give us the negative. He's going to give us a negative, an example of, uh, of murder and hatred of Cain for Abel. We notice it there in verse 12. He says, after he's just said that we should love one another, but he says, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. And so he uses this example of Cain. It's interesting he goes back to Cain. All the way back to Genesis chapter 4. It's actually the only uh, um, personal pronoun name, a distinct name that he gives us in the book. And it takes us all the way back to the very first created or born person under the curse. Cain is the first one born under the curse And we find that he is one that is struggling with this aspect of love and instead has hatred and murder in his heart. In fact, I want you to turn back there. If you have your Bibles, go back to Genesis chapter 4. And we're just going to just look at a brief portion of it there in verses 3 to 8 just to see this scenario. But again, this is the first person on the earth born under the curse of sin as the first child of Adam and Eve. And John's telling us here, our love that we should have for one another should not be like Cain's. Well, what does his look like? In Genesis chapter 4, verse 3, it says, In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass and they were in the field that Cain rose against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So here's here's the scenario. It tells us that both of the boys come and they're bringing their offerings to the Lord. And Abel brings the, of, the, of his flocks and he brings a lamb and offers it. But Cain brings of the, uh, of the ground, some of the produce of the ground and offers it to the Lord. And the question is, well, why would they do this? Is Cain even wrong for offering this? Isn't this good? He's offering produce to the Lord. How do they even know that they should be offering sacrifices to God? Because it's not told to us prior to this in Genesis at all. But obviously, what we're not told, obviously, they did know that they were expected to offer sacrifices. And obviously, they were given some instructions because later on in Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us in verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Here's the reality. Faith takes God at his word and acts upon it. And so God had given them instruction. Here's what I want you to do. Abel obeyed and offered the right sacrifice. Cain said, no, I want to offer what I want to offer. Offers it to God. And God, basically it says, when it says he did not have respect on it, he turns his back on Cain's sacrifice. Says that's not what you're supposed to bring. And so in essence here what we have is Cain is upset because he's not obeying God. He wants to to be religious, but on his own terms. 
He wants to approach God, wants to live his life on his own terms. He wants to determine for himself what is right and wrong. And by the very fact that Abel is accepted and Abel does this, it condemns his actions. Well, that makes Cain very angry. That God would not allow him to do it his way. That Abel would do it that way bothers him because Abel's now accepted and he's not. And he's jealous and he doesn't like that. He's angry at his brother for this. And so the root here is this wickedness of pride that lurks in every heart that says, I should be able to define righteousness for myself. I should be able to define the terms by which I approach God and live my life and nobody else should have a right to that. God says, no, that's wrong. And when that was brought forward, Cain gets angry. And then he goes and murders his own brother in the field. And so the root here is a wicked, worldly type of love that wants to be in control and not surrender to God. It does not want to, its works to be revealed as evil. And so he murders his brother. And what, then John goes further to explain, this is why the world hates godly Christianity. Because the pursuit of purity and righteous living before God that was just discussed condemns an impure, selfish living. And the world hates that. Don't we see that a lot today? That by the very actions of people taking a stand for righteous, holy living according to the word of God, the, the unbelievers in the world that, that don't follow that are upset at the believers. We see that in various ways. We see pro-life pregnancy centers that are, are, are uh, vandalized and, and we see people picketing and cursing and threatening them. Why? Why would they care? Because their righteous actions condemns the unrighteous actions. We have all kinds of other forms. We have people in churches who take a stand on biological gender and heterosexual marriage and they're hated because we dare to to be in obedience to the word of God and live in opposition to their lifestyle that condemns them. Just this week, I read an article about a police officer who on his own personal time and on his own personal social media posted just his opinion about that, that God designed marriage and it reflects the relationship between Christ and the church who are not the same but are distinctly different and therefore presents a pattern for us of marriage even in that example and someone saw that, called in the police department. He was called in the office and threatened and was forced later on to resign his position because of his own personal time. Why would somebody care? Because they didn't, they didn't want their actions to be condemned. And so what John is emphasizing here is, is the love that a Christian has shouldn't be that we are judging someone else or in other words that we are upset if their their life is is giving a pattern that doesn't isn't consistent with our lifestyle but it should be a righteous type of love we don't love that is a love that is angry or murderous towards other people a person whose life is marked by selfish hatred of others shows no evidence of new life in christ and that's what he's emphasizing here and so really this first of all this is a, a, a godly Christian, Christian love loves sincerely. It loves righteously might be another way you could even put that. How else does it love? Well, let's go to the next verse in verse 16. And it loves sacrificially. 
So he's just talked about this. It's not going to be murderous. It's not going to be hateful. And he says, by this, we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So the negative example of love was modeled in Adam's firstborn. But the positive example of love is in God's firstborn, Jesus Christ, who was sacrificial. Many of us are, many of us are quite familiar with probably the most popular verses in Scripture, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But 1 John 3.16 almost follows in the same pattern. It repeats that sacrifice of Christ for us, but it also gives an action to the believer to follow. As it says there, by this we know love, because he, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so this is the example for us. Now, what does that look like for us? What does a sacrificial Christian love practically look like? Well, I would, I would say that there's three areas that I would just want to highlight that sacrificial love looks like and involves. One of them that it's going to involve is going to involve a surrendering. Your flesh is going to constantly seek its own, and it takes a work of the Holy Spirit to love. We, we constantly want to please ourselves. Our, our natural flesh is self-focused. But we have to surrender that and surrender that to the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, and verse 16, it says, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And then it describes the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, first one being that of love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And so this aspect, I've got to surrender my own will. I've got to surrender my own desires for that of others and to be in obedience to the Holy Spirit. Also, it involves sacrificing. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, after the first commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength he says secondly and love your neighbor as yourself the, the real challenge of that is the phrase as yourself because that puts a whole different element to loving your neighbor because there's probably no one that we love and want to take care of more than ourselves. he says that's the way we should be treating others around us sacrificially like that you know let me just give you a practical example of how that even works out and maybe in your home is the same so we still have a young one who's four in our home we have a couple dogs in our house and so there are nights where kingston is up in the night or the dogs are wanting out in the night and nobody at 3 a.m wants to deal with either let's just be straight up honest right so what happens when the baby is, is crying or the dogs are coming, they want to go out? In that moment, you have three options. One is to pretend that you don't hear it because you're sound asleep. And act like it's, you don't have any clue. The other option is to nudge your partner, your spouse, and be like, Hey, the baby is crying, you should go take care of the baby but the third would be to say okay why don't you stay sleeping 
I'll get up and go take care of this situation. I'm not going to tell you which one gets, uh, happens the most often in my life. Um, I will tell you I am grateful for a wife who is very loving in this regard. Um, but that's just a practical way of love is, is visible, it is practical, it's attainable, um, and, and that could be displayed in so many ways, right? There's just one practical example of love being sacrificial, it could be sacrificial and being displayed and spending some time or money on someone that you, you want to you show that you care about and saying, man, I want to invest in them and so I want to give some to here, their time. Or maybe it was that you had some things set aside for a hobby or some plans that you had and you say, I'll, I'll put them aside for the good of this individual that I want to love. You know, and that could be so many different ways that sacrificial loving could be displayed. Putting aside our desire. And it could be a desire of where you want to go out to eat. Or where you had your desire to go on a family vacation. And be able to say, you know what? They would really rather, my spouse or my family would really rather do this. And so, I'm going to sacrifice my desire to go meet their desire. Right? Do you see how love is sacrificial? And that's just... That's just practical ways, and it could be on and on. And within the church, we can see that in so many different ways. People sacrificially coming alongside to help someone, or, or to provide a meal, or to help provide finances for somebody that might be struggling, or someone who's trying to go on a missions trip and help support them in that trip. Oh, on and on. And so loving sacrificially involves that surrendering, involves sacrificing, but it also involves serving. Galatians 5.13 It says, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Serve one another. I enjoy doing, and I've done lots of it over the years, premarital counseling, preparing a couple for marriage. And in in that moment, as they're preparing for marriage, they can't imagine that it would be difficult or it would be a challenge to to love and sacrifice and serve that individual in their marriage. Because at that moment, they're just, they're just so wrapped up in their love for each other. And I try to help them understand, if you're going to have a joy-filled, close, intimate marriage, it's going to involve sacrificing and serving one another. The couples, I said, you go watch. And I challenge you. I said, I'll, I'll go, I challenge you, go look around the congregation, go look around your family and around the community and observe those couples that have been married for a long period of time and they just, they enjoy each other and they love each other and it's visible. And you'll notice one thing, they serve each other. They serve each other. They, they'll sacrifice for each other. This is a part of their, it's, it's practical loving. And that's what's being demonstrated for us here. It's, Jesus or John is saying, look, this is how Christ loved us. He laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brother. We had to sacrifice. We had to serve. We had to surrender for them. And so this love is to love sincerely. It's to love sacrificially. But thirdly, it's to love practically. Going on in verse 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, 
but in deed and in truth. And what John does here wisely is he, he turns from loving the brethren in a plural sense, and he turns it singular, who sees his brother in need. He's, he's going to say, let's just not make this, you know, uh, just a metaphorical or an allegory, but this is practical to somebody. This is this person in front of you and meeting their need. It's personal and active. James addressed this same thing when he was talking about genuine faith being evidenced by works. And he says in James 2, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. This analogy that, that true faith is going to be evidenced by action. In the same way John is saying here, true love is going to be evidenced by action. By not just loving in word, but in deed. And helping to care for people's needs. I read a story about this, uh, this, this girl that was hiking out in Colorado. And she ran across this other girl that was coming down the mountain. And she had... One boot on one foot, but on her other foot, she had this makeshift with twigs and branches and, and things and wrapped up with some cloth on her other foot. And she paused and said, what, what is the matter? What are you doing? She said, well, I lost my other boot in the stream. And so I'm now trying to hike down the mountain with this that I made with sticks and stuff. And I hope I can make it down in time before it gets dark. And the girl said to her, she said, well, wait a minute, I've got an extra, I've got an extra like a sports sandal that you could wear. Why don't you take this and just mail it back to me whenever you get home? And so they did. They, she took it, they exchanged the address and whatnot. And the next week she got it back in the mail. Uh, her sandal arrived back in the mail with a note saying this. I passed several people who noticed my predicament but you're the only one who offered any help. It made all the difference. Thanks for sharing your sandal with me. And that's just a practical thing, right? You would think that that would be natural. People would be like, hey, how can I help here? Some of you are aware, my dad, uh, this past October, was in a hiking incident. Uh, they were hiking out uh, on vacation in Hawaii, actually, and um, on a really dangerous trail, and he lost his footing and fell off a 35 to 40 foot cliff went down just boom 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 over the side and um, broken bones and lacerations and jaw broken and different things it was pretty banged up um, but he was so far in they had he had to get up and hike a couple miles back out before they could get a helicopter to pick him up and so he's hiking back and he's I mean, he's got blood everywhere and his jaws out of place and um and he would hike past people and they would look and put their head down and walk past him until finally this nurse caught up to them and said, I've been following your blood trail. Can I help you? And we hear that and we think, why wouldn't that just be like the natural response, right? Like, how can I help you? You look like you're in bad shape. Can there be something I can do? But that's, but that's because we're thinking like a Christian. A Christian loves practically. We say, how can we help? How can we come alongside? We don't just put our head down and be like, I got my plans. I got my agenda. I'm trying to ascend this peak and I'm going to do it. And I'm not going to get in my way. 
No, a Christian says, I'm willing to put my agenda, my plans, my needs aside to love practically. Someone else needs help. What can I do to help? That's, that's Christianity. And that's what John is saying there. You see, if you have the ability, you have the, the goods, and you see a brother in need, why would you shut up your heart from him? How would the love of God abide in you if you're going to do like that? Like if we bear the, the DNA of being a child of God, then it would be natural for us to say, well, how would God love in this situation? How can I love like Christ? And so it loves very practically. It can be touched. It can be tangible. And it may be as, as big as the Good Samaritan that, that Christ gave the analogy of in Luke 10 who cares for the injured man and, and pays for his care and puts him on the, his own animal and takes him to a place for care. Or it may be as simple as, as Jesus also gave the analogy of giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. It's, it's seeing needs, whatever level of which they are, and helping tangibly. And so love, uh, love is practical, but then fourthly, we see that love is also biblical. We love biblically. In verse 18, where he says, My little children, let's not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. It's interesting that he gives this, this qualifier of truth. That love needs to also be balanced with biblical truth and paired with that. And there's an, there's an importance to this. If, as we think through, how am I caring for somebody? Am I, is this, as I try to help meet a need, is this a genuine need? Or am I enabling somebody to continue in a pattern that's not good for their life? And am I helping them by becoming, this is one of the things that we talk about sometimes in our, in our deacons meetings, is I, am I helping someone to direct them towards becoming physically independent and more spiritually dependent upon Christ. So can we use these resources to help them? And can we maybe give them some financial counsel if needed? But how can we help in that regard? And is this a genuine need in truth? Because love is not a blanket hall pass that overlooks God's laws or his standards. You know, the cultural cry of love today is that it, it is love is just nice and tolerant. That it accepts all things. John gives the qualifier that love needs to be in accordance with God and his word. It needs to be in truth. And therefore, Jesus was not unloving when he'd call out the hypocritical Pharisees. Or when he preached bold and confrontational sermons to people. That was not unloving when he'd call out sin, he'd call out adultery. That's not unloving. It was not unloving when, when he told the rich young man, hey, listen, you need to sell all your goods and go give it to the poor. And he's identifying his, his dependency and his need. It was not unloving for Jesus when even Peter, his own beloved disciple, was correcting Jesus and Jesus had to tell him, get behind me, Satan. Because love still, as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, love rejoices in the truth. Rejoices in the truth. And so it's not, it's not that love is just this fluffy good feeling. Love is founded in God, who is the one who is love, and thereby he then gets to define love for us. And so we have to analyze, is this love biblical? And so as we think about as a child of God, John is saying, hey, listen, if we're going to see the reality of this as a child of God, love will be sincere. It's not going to be hatred. It's not going to be anger. Love will be sacrificial. 
Love will be practical and love will be biblical. There's the reality of Christian love. Now, what does that produce? Okay, let's go to the next point here. The results of a child of God that's given to us in verses 19 to 24. So what, is there, what does that now do in my life? And he starts out verse 19. He says, and by this we know. Now, by what? What is the this? Well, I think what he's pointing back to is by these two analogies of that a true child of God is going to pursue righteousness and a true child of God is going to love the brethren by doing these things. When you have a heartbeat, to not that you're going to do it perfectly, not that we're always going to have purity and righteousness perfectly in our lives, but when you're pursuing purity and when you're trying to love the brethren as Christ does, then by this we know that we are the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. And so... What he's going to emphasize is there's three results that are being evident in the life of the believer. The first one is that assurance of salvation. By this, we know. We know that we're of the truth. It's not a hope so. It's not, man, I think I might be. But there is an assurance of, there is there's a, a reality. I can see the fingerprints of God in my life. I can see the DNA of godliness in my life as I do these things. And I, I want to pursue these things. And he says, and this shall assure or persuade our hearts before him. So I believe what he's emphasizing, he's talking to believers. He's saying, listen, I'm not writing to try to make you doubt your salvation. I'm trying to give you assurance of it. For those who are children of God and are walking with God and are growing in that, this assures your hearts. Even though your heart sometimes condemns you and you, you feel like, man, I, I feel like, how can I truly be a child of God if I have this desire? How can I be like a child of God if I'm struggling with this thing over here? And he says, no, let me emphasize as you're working at these things, as you grow in these things, it gives you assurance of salvation. Because the truth is, is after examining ourselves as to whether or not sin is a struggle or if we're loving, we, we recognize, man, that still is a struggle. And sometimes what happens then is we say, man, am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? I, how, could I, how could I think that thought and be a Christian? How can I, how can I turn my back on not caring for that person if I'm truly a Christian? And, and all of a sudden, what... What happens is instead of recognizing, instead of recognizing that my, my salvation is rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ, it's now being questioned by my emotions. Do I feel saved because I've got this sin I'm struggling with? Right, but didn't John already say in 1 John chapter 1 that if we say we have no sin, we lie and deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us? We're going to have this struggle of sin. But he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so when those feelings come, the, the key is, is don't let my feelings drive the train of my assurance of my salvation. Go back to what does God say in his word? Go back to God's word says my salvation is in a free gift by faith in Jesus Christ. And what he's done for me on the cross. And I believe that. I trust that what he's done for me on the cross. And so, therefore, rather than saying I need to get re-saved, maybe I just need to confess some sins and get right with the Lord and renew that fellowship with the Lord as it needs to be. And so, 
and the reality is, let's put it like this. Just in the same way, physical pain is an indicator that there's life. You know, pain is actually a blessing. If you can't feel pain, it's, it's a negative thing. Because it means that there's parts of your body that are dying. But pain is an indicator of life. It also alerts us and warns us of things. And so, in the same way, as we get these emotions of, man, I'm struggling with this sin, it's an indicator of genuine life. So if your sin bothers you, praise God that it bothers you. Be more concerned if your sin does not bother you. If you struggle with loving people, praise God you struggle with that. Because it's an indicator that, man, I should be doing more. What that emphasizes to me is the Holy Spirit is alive and active in your life. The DNA is there. It's just not fully processed yet. It's not, we're, we're still in that sanctification process, right? We're still growing in that. But it doesn't mean that, that there isn't health, there isn't salvation. In that same way, that same analogy, there was a theologian back many years ago, Theodore, or, uh, theologian Alexander White. And as a child, he had an accident, an incident happened, and he almost lost his arm. And his family was getting ready to take him to the hospital to have his arm amputated. And the, the neighbor was a nurse, and she said, well, can I, can I nurse him for a while? Can I try to take him? I think if possible, I might be able to save his arm. And so they, they began to let her nurse him for several weeks. But as the, as the nursing went on, the pain started to come back into, the, into his arm. And she would say to him, I like the pain. I like the pain. And that sounds like a cruel nurse. Some of you have had maybe a nurse like that. Um, but what she was saying is, hey, that's an, that's an indicator to me. That, that things are rebuilding and there's life, there's health coming back into your arm. That's a good indicator. When your conscience bothers you about sin, I mean, that's an indicator that life is happening. That, that it's alive. That doesn't mean I need to go get resaved. It means, Lord, is there any sin that I need to make right with you? It's not that I'm no longer your child. It's that maybe our fellowship has been broken because of sin. And so as we are doing these things, as we're pursuing purity to please the Lord, as we're loving one another, it assures our hearts. It just is an encouragement to us that we know that we're saved. And so there's the first thing. There's an assurance of salvation. The second is answered prayers. Verses 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. What he's saying is, is if, if we are right with God and we're in a fellowship, that our hearts are not condemning us, we, we're, we're walking with the Lord. He says we have a confidence to come, to come before the Lord with our prayers and that he's going to answer our prayers. That he's going he's gonna to move in those ways. Gives us a boldness to enter into his, before his throne. And so it produces, walking in fellowship with him produces confidence towards God. And confidence towards God gives us boldness to ask for what we need. Jesus said the same thing in John 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. It's the same thing he's saying there in verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. And that doesn't mean that there's like I can earn the ability 
to get my prayers answered. It means as I walk with him, I have a confidence that my prayers are the right prayers. I'm in fellowship with him. I'm longing for the right things. And I'm trusting him as I go forward. There's this confidence in answered prayers. Now, what do we do then when it seems like our prayer isn't answered? There's been times in my life where I've prayed for something for a long time and wondering, God, why are you not answering this prayer? And there's where faith comes in because sometimes we don't realize we're probably praying for the wrong thing. Let me give you an example this way. When Jesus told Peter he was praying for him before he went and was betrayed and he told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. He said, and Satan is desiring to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. How? That your faith fail not. I wouldn't have prayed that. I would have prayed, Peter, I've been praying for you that you wouldn't deny me. I'm going to pray that you don't you don't sin here. He doesn't say that. He says, Peter, I'm going to pray that ultimately in the end, your faith doesn't fail. And that when you're converted, strengthen the brethren. Like, I got a plan for you. And even in this, there's a plan for it. So sometimes we got to ask, Lord, Lord, how do you want me to pray for this? I may be asking this wrong. I may be asking the wrong thing. What's your will in this? Isn't that how Christ taught us to pray? Your will be done. And so... But as we walk with the Lord, as we fellowship with Him, as we're pursuing purity and walking in love, we're in fellowship with God, and there's this confidence, God, I have a heartbeat for the things that you have a heartbeat for. And I have a confidence that, that there's, a, there's a rightness between me and you, and as a father and a son, I can ask with a confidence that you'll hear me. And so there's that, that blessing that John is saying as we continue in that. And then the last thing there is there's a continued abiding in Christ. Verse 23 and 24. He says, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. In other words, as you pursue these things, not only are you abiding in Christ, But Christ is abiding in you and his spirit is having the freedom to work in your life, to indicate things in your life. There's open communication as you're walking and abiding in Christ. Man, isn't that special? Isn't that just so sweet when you hear from the Lord and you're able to be led and directed by him? That's what John is saying. This is one of the products or results of a child of God doing this. So as we noted last week, a true child will will bear the, the family mark, the family traits the, the, of their parents, their DNA is in them. In the same way, God has been so good and loving to make us his children. And then as that, that makes us have a desire to want to pursue righteousness, pursue holiness. And it also gives us a desire to love. Love the way Christ would love. That we would, we, we would love people uh, sincerely and And we would love people sacrificially and practically, and we would love people biblically. As we sang earlier, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just so little of. That's what is so distinct about Christianity. 
It's marked by Christian love, and it produces such great things in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. And God, I, help, I pray that you'd help us as we walk with you and desire to be pleasing before you. That this aspect of love would grow in our lives. And Lord, the, the purpose of this text is not to make anybody here question their salvation. It's to help us be assured of that salvation. But if there's any here that are questioning, I pray that you would draw them to the fact that you're a good and loving God who allows us and permits us to come by faith through Jesus Christ to you. And so God, I pray today that if there's need for inspection there, that Lord, you'd reveal through your spirit and draw us closer to you. Help us to love the way we ought to love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.